It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Previously on Three Little Words. I just had this weird feeling, me being me and the rain and the thundering and the storm and I knew my dad was on his last leg. You can almost smell when a person is going to die. And I said, your dad just died. What can be done to try to lower the incidence of HIV AIDS in some of these communities where it's still a problem? The only way for HIV to decrease in its spread is if you receive therapy for it. If you develop HIV and you never take treatment, you're living in the 80s. From the Tampa Bay Times, this is Three Little Words. I'm Austin Fast. In 1996, The Times published a 29-part series by staff writer Roy Peter Clark about a family dealing with HIV and AIDS. It was an innovative way of telling a compelling story about what, at the time, was still a controversial subject. 25 years later, we're reconnecting with the family and discussing AIDS today. This is Chapter 5, Her Father's Daughter. I just want to show you the territory very quickly. Austin, you've probably not been in this building before. No, I've never, never been. Yeah, and this is my pod uh, without any technology there because it's all home. Roy Peter Clark leads me through the maze of hallways in the Pointer Institute for Media Studies. That's the nonprofit journalism school that owns the Tampa Bay Times. So this is the Great Wall of RPC. Oh, my gosh. So <laughs> everything on that right wall except for the books on the very, very end Uh, belong to me, including these file boxes. An entire wall of his high-ceilinged workspace is devoted to Roy's archives. It's over four decades of notes, writing lessons, correspondence, and manuscripts organized into numbered file boxes. Roy pulls two off the shelf. Box four was three little words, AIDS, and box seven was three little words. And so that's what you're seeing out there. When I went through all of my interviews and all the reporting, I came up with about 125 scenes that I thought were interesting or potentially useful. But it's really hard to, you know, doing research in chronological order. So you have to find stuff. This is a paper map, children, and... You know, we had to walk to school in the snow back in the day, you know, 30 miles each way. What's it a map of? I'm not sure. Probably Michigan. Oh, yeah. It says Battle Creek, Kalamazoo. Yes. That's that's definitely. Yep, that's where they they were. I probably spent a week knocking around up there. It could never have been a place 
where it would have been in any way easy for him to be his true self. Brazil, I think there were more ways that he could, more avenues. And to me, the tension between these two places and two spaces just had tremendous sort of narrative. Um, I'm always looking for that, you know, that tension. Roy pulls an old reporter's notebook from the box. So this is the first thing that I found, right? And I opened it up, and in the back it said, Bachman, and that's how I got him on the telephone. Uh, just from opening... His number is still, still current? It worked. Yeah. <laughs> right there, in the echoey lobby of the Pointer Institute, Roy dials his old editor, Richard Bachman, using the phone number scribbled in a 25-year-old notepad. Bachman retired from the Times in 2011, but his phone rings across the bay in Tampa. It's a, it's a mitzvah that I got you. Yes, I'm glad you called, and I'm glad to help out where I can. Okay, thank you, Richard. The newspaper ran after the series ended. They ran, I want to say it was a full entire page of letters to the editor. And every single one of them was negative. Every single one was like... You know, I'm canceling my subscription. I've been a reader for 30 years, and I can't believe how, you know, you've turned into a tabloid and this and that. And I remember thinking, like, every letter is negative. I can't believe this. I mean, I knew we were going to have people that weren't going to like it. But I just could not believe that it was like, you know, where was the positive letter? Neatly organized into manila folders, all those letters to the editor are still there in Roy's file boxes 25 years later. Many are even complete with their envelopes and senders' mailing addresses. A Clearwater woman describes three little words as a poorly written, pointless story. An alternative Tampa paper called The Weekly Planet accuses the Times of assaulting the community with a 29-part soap opera. A man from Seminole calls the series trash and cancels his subscription. He wrote, I'm sorry for that family, but that is the price of sin and choosing to live wrong. His message, handwritten on yellow legal paper, was passed on to Roy from the newspaper's then-executive editor, Paul Tash, who's still with the paper, but now as chairman and CEO. It was in some ways a universal story of infidelity that all kinds of people could uh, identify with, not just folks who, who might have considered themselves at risk of HIV. You know, looking back over 25 years, one of the things I would take forward is try to think how will this look in another quarter century. And you mentioned some of the very angry letters, some very uh, mean letters that came out of three little words. I doubt those people would hold those same views today. But Roy's editor, Richard Bachman, says once the Times published those initial reactions to Jane's story, the conversation shifts. It was like people read all these negative letters and then we got it was like all positive. I can't believe these people are so narrow-minded. I can't believe these, you know, this was the best, the best thing I've read. This was like, thank you for bringing us, you know, insight into something that we've never read about. Thank you for handling this with care. You know, Jane Morse is a hero for sharing her story. A closeted gay man with three daughters in St. Petersburg schools writes anonymously to thank the Times for helping him cope with his own secret. High school teacher Mark Shoup's entire English class sends complimentary letters all the way from Carmel, Indiana. 
Vacationing Midwesterners get hooked on the story and write Roy, asking how to access later chapters from a thousand miles away. The newspaper had a phone system at the time that readers could call to hear recorded summaries of certain articles. Here's Roy in one of the surviving examples from 1996. No matter how vast this problem is, it very often comes down to individual families struggling with uh, the health of a loved one who's dying. I wanted to tell the story through the eyes of a single person and to help her experience teach others about the disease, about what to be afraid of, and more importantly, what not to fear, to overcome their prejudices and their irrational anxieties. This phone system took over 7,000 calls through the weeks the series ran. Plus, the internet is just taking off in 1996. Editors of the new St. Petersburg Times website notice an unusual bump in traffic at 2 a.m. every day when new chapters of Three Little Words go online. Roy's editor, Richard Bachman, had feared people would lose interest over a month and peel off. But people were living with it day after day after day. It connected with them and it settled into them in a, in a much deeper way than I even kind of pictured going into it. A couple weeks after the series ends, the Times organizes a panel discussion at the University of South Florida's St. Pete campus. Richard estimates over 300 people showed up. I think a lot of people went just because they wanted to meet Jane. They wanted to see her and they wanted to thank her. Like when it ended, she had this whole crowd of people around her like, like she was a rock star almost. I had a handful of people that came up to me and said, well, I'm going through this, but with a uh, reversal where my wife is, you know, saying that she's gay and, and doesn't want to be married. And there's a lot of that, too. It was very heartening. I mean, I felt like we did a real good service. 25 years later, just out of curiosity, I looked up. Um, Ellen DeGeneres had her show. She had a primetime like, sitcom. She had this the famous, like, where she came out, and she kissed Laura Dern, you know, in primetime TV. And that was, like, a huge thing. That happened, like, a year after the story was published. That famous 1997 episode of Ellen's sitcom was the first time network television featured an openly gay actress playing an openly gay character. And then I looked, Will and Grace was groundbreaking TV. That was, like, two years after this was published. So we it was, this was, like... You think now how far we've come a long ways, and it's hard to kind of appreciate how back then, how, I wouldn't say it was revolutionary or anything, but it was, it was, it was something different than people were used to, that's for sure. Three Little Words' final episode concludes after this quick break. great pain in the lives of many gay and lesbian people, transgender people, is not uh, rejection by strangers. It's uh, rejection by loved ones. Roy Peter Clark believes Mick Morse feared, more than anything, what his family might say if they knew his truth. Now, they can't know for sure, but today, Jane and his kids all believe Mick was either gay or bisexual. And it's clear that doesn't diminish how much they loved him. 
In the year following Mick's death, before the family sprinkles his ashes into the Gulf of Mexico, Jane wonders how often her family's experience plays out. How many other people live with secret, unnecessary shame? How many die without ever expressing the truth? Just months after Mick's death, a movie helped solidify Jane's resolve to share their story. It's a film that would end up winning its up-and-coming star his first Academy Award. Was it Tom Hanks? Are you talking about Philadelphia? Yeah. Oh, that put me over the edge. At Christmas time, 1993, Philadelphia becomes one of the first mainstream Hollywood films to acknowledge AIDS and its frequent companion, homophobia. Tom Hanks plays a closeted gay lawyer who believes he's fired because of his sexuality and his positive HIV diagnosis. Jane remembers an intense scene as Hanks, dying of AIDS, wheels his IV stand around his condo. This is my favorite aria, he explains to his lawyer, played by Denzel Washington. Hanks sways to the music, forgetting the plastic tube chaining him to an IV. Tears dripping, he translates from Italian. I bring sorrow to those who love me. It was during this sorrow that love came to me. Megan and I went to that together and, you know, we just were booing practically the whole time. Jane remembers how much Mick loved opera. She knows the stereotypes of gay men and some fit Mick. A love for the arts, travel, languages, his sensitivity as a teacher and counselor. These were the best parts of Mick's character. Were they also expressions of his sexuality? The evidence is circumstantial, impressions and hearsay. Jane still feels betrayed, but she'll come to live with this mystery, even as Mick died with it. For her, the film Philadelphia represents... Just the whole ramifications of back in the day, families were like, no son of mine is going to be gay, no daughter of mine. It's just so hard to imagine that families would really disown their son over something, you know, okay, I get it to a certain extent, but, you know, you love your children unconditionally, no matter what. It's too bad because looking back, if I, if I had known, I would hope that I could just say, I wish, I don't care if you're gay, I love you, like you're still my dad. I will say growing up, my sister was my best friend. We're two and a half years apart and we did everything together. You know, we, we were, she was a little bit more tomboyish than I was, but we were both athletic. We both liked sports. We would both go swimming and, you know, we were always outside playing. People say I am my mother's daughter. She is my father's daughter. Erin is very, she's cerebral like my dad, she's more, you know, more, a little bit more reserved. And, and yeah, I think they're very similar. I was kind of a late bloomer, I would say. Um, so 
post-college, just in my 20s, living on my own, working, you know, you, I guess you start to think a little bit more. You start to realize who you who you are, who you want to become. And that, so that's, I guess, when it happened for me is when I realized who I was. And I didn't want it to be with a, a man. <laughs> the youngest Morse child, Aaron, was always the most like her dad. Thoughtful, athletic, stoic. I didn't tell my family because I'm not that type of person. <laughs> I guess I'm more like my father. It was just... Well, it's not like, a you know, my sister went out and told them, oh, I'm not gay or, oh, I'm a heterosexual. So why do I feel the need to, to explain myself like that? Now in her early 40s, Erin's done something her father Mick could have never imagined in his lifetime. She's happily married to someone of the same sex. He would admire it. I think he would also, who knows, maybe be a little jealous of it. But I think he'd be proud of it, too. They traveled to Massachusetts for a small wedding ceremony in 2014, when same-sex marriage was still not legal in Florida, one year before a Supreme Court case would take marriage equality nationwide. She teaches math and I teach science. So, so a match made in heaven, <laughs> math <laughs> right? and science. The STEM fields, yeah, literally <laughs> here. So tell me a little bit about how you, like, how, how she first caught your eye. I just saw her leaving school one day and I thought, oh, who's that? I know nobody believes me. They think this was all a ploy, but I really wanted to get math certified. So I, <laughs> I sent an email out um, full, knowing full well that she was a math teacher and I was just kind of hoping she might be the person to respond. So she ended up responding and then she helped me go through some some lessons that, you know, I just needed brushing up on. And so we, you know, we got to know each other better through there. And then we started running together because we both enjoyed running together. And then it, we just kind of took off from there. It's kind of the classic, like, 90s sitcom. <laughs> like, high school teenager yeah. boy. That's what it reminds me of, like, Sage by the Bell or Boy Meets World or something. Like, I, I love it. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> That's so embarrassing. No, no, it's cute. I like it. <laughs> Jane didn't push Aaron. You know, we talk and, and, well, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I'm going out with Tracy. So I finally got to the point where I said, Aaron, Tracy. Now, Tracy could be a boy's name, could be a girl's name. You want to tell me? <laughs> So you hadn't met Tracy yet. So, no. So she said, uh, it's a girl. Tracy's a girl. And I said, well, obviously you like her quite a bit because you guys go out all the time. And um, I said, I think that's great. Whatever you want for me, I want you to be happy. And I think it's time to meet Tracy. (laughs) Aaron's brother David says none of them were too shocked and no one was scandalized. They were just happy to hear the truth. Aaron came out the way Aaron would come out. Guys, this is my partner, partner. This is my family. Here, okay. Oh, okay. What just happened? <laughs> and that's, that's how she is. At St. Petersburg Lakewood High School through the 90s, Aaron heard whispers about gay kids, but she says it all stayed in the background. Not anymore, though. I feel like I see it everywhere I go, especially actually in the younger generation. When I walk the hallways at my school, you know, I see 
girls, I don't know if I see the guys, but I see girls holding hands or just maybe a quick little kiss on the cheek or whatever, whatever it is. And it's, it's in your face, not necessarily them trying to be in your face, but it's right in front of you. And uh, when I recall back to when I was in high school, you, I don't think I ever saw that. So I think it's great. And not only that, but when I hear students talking in the classroom or wherever, they're very open and they not only are they open about their friends perhaps being gay, but they're very open about themselves being gay. So it's, I think it's changed completely. So it sounds like you kind of, uh, do you admire that in them a little bit? Do you- yeah, there's a little bit of uh, jealousy, uh, definitely admiration that they can just be so open. So yeah, it's, it's refreshing to hear. But you, I, you know, we watch TV probably too much, but, um, you know, we see the commercials about being HIV positive or having AIDS and they show a bunch of different type of people with the, um, the HIV diagnosis or AIDS diagnosis. She's probably talking about Bictarvi, a pill St. Petersburg HIV specialist Bob Wallace pointed out on that poster at his clinic in the last episode. For people living with HIV, keep being you and ask your doctor about Bictarvi. Bictarvi is it's a- been heavily advertised on billboards and television for over a year now. If you're living with HIV, keep loving who you are and ask your doctor if Bictarvi is right for you. Roy Peter Clark also sees these commercials and is left with one impression. They were gay. They, they were spectacularly gay and they were hugging and they were, uh, and I'm not sure if there's a, there's a transgender person. One of the ads does, in fact, show a transgender woman dancing in a club with her partner. There's an older Mexican-American man smiling at a family dinner. And at the end, two black men on a rooftop terrace sharing a kiss on national television. But I'm saying, oh, my God, you know, this is something that was unimaginable when when we were first writing Three Little Words a quarter century ago. Not even a quarter century ago. I think maybe even as recent as 10 years ago. You're right. You're right. That's social progress. It's justice. It's health care. I, I think it's an expression of a democratic virtue that is underappreciated. And that virtue is tolerance. I have gay people in my family, we all do, I think. Uh, my son-in-law is transgender. I've heard people say, I don't want to just be tolerated. I want to be accepted. And I get that, but tolerance is a, is a heck of a good start. Look at all the progress the LGBTQ plus community has made since Three Little Words published 25 years ago. The Pride Festival attracts a quarter million people to St. Petersburg each June. Rainbow flags and gay bars line the city's Central Avenue, which was a ghost town a decade or two ago. Even just six years ago, the company that makes these Victarvi pills from these commercials didn't see PrEP as a moneymaker, so it wasn't advertising them at all. Patient advocates demanded change, and these commercials started popping up just a couple years back. Yet, intolerance remains. 
If you watch any spots advertising HIV treatments online, don't read the comments. They'll ruin your day. Or at least they did for me when I strayed across them. Dr. Bob Wallace says he was the first known openly gay student to graduate the University of Florida College of Medicine in 1982. When I told my parents, they told me they never wanted to see me again. And I packed up and moved to San Francisco for a year. So it was hard. It was really a challenge. But by the time my parents passed, they were both my best friends. We were three blocks from the Castro District. The Castro District was the gayest area in the world. (laughs) We had no fears back then. I mean, there wasn't. And that's that's part of what I want to say about today's culture. The young men of today are behaving just like we behaved back in the 70s. It's free sex. It's easy to get. There's different apps that you can use and find out that the man across the room is wanting to meet you. And that's how it was back in the 70s. Despite increasingly effective medical options and decreasing stigma, Dr. Wallace warns sexually transmitted infection remains a threat to many LGBTQ folks, as does intolerance. A few years back at a meeting in South Dakota, one of the guys came up to me after this meeting and he said, I take it from what you said, you might be gay. And he said, let me walk you to your car and don't come back. He said uh, the last person that was openly gay was beaten nearly to death in the parking lot after the meeting. Florida law includes protection from hate crimes based on sexual orientation, but experts say it's woefully underreported. The FBI counted only 22 incidents statewide in 2020. And the law doesn't include protections from crimes based on gender or gender identity, leaving many transgender people at risk. Roy Peter Clark's daughter, Allison, married a transgender man. Roy was shocked to hear his son-in-law describe how some gay and lesbian people discriminate against the transgender community. I said, wait a minute. What what are you telling me? And the answer I got was, um, they think we're freaks and, uh, and they think that people will think they're freaks. And so, you know, it's, and I'm saying, oh my gosh, you know, some work needs to be done. And it, and it has. Dr. Jeffrey Panessa points out the general population has embraced LGBTQ plus rights since Three Little Words published. In 1996, less than three in 10 Americans supported same-sex marriage. This summer, support hit an all-time high, seven in 10 Americans. Support has grown even among groups who've traditionally opposed gay rights. The number of white evangelical Christians who favor same-sex marriage almost tripled in the last 15 years. And almost half of Republicans support it today. However, um, certain communities, the the ultra-religious communities, the um, African-American communities, the Latino communities... um, there's still a significant stigma. And if there's a stigma about gay, then there's a stigma about HIV. But norms can change. Last episode, Dr. Wallace said his work is cut out for him at his all-black church in St. Petersburg. But even there, he sees progress. 
One week, this Baptist church's senior pastor stands in the pulpit and says, I want to talk to you all about something that's really important to me, and it goes against the Bible, but I stand firm. And that is, I'm not opposed to homosexuality. I do not feel that it is a sin. And I think that we need to embrace our brothers and sisters who are gay. And I just burst into tears. Twenty-five years after Three Little Words, that Brazilian warmth and hospitality still emanate from every member of the Morse family. When I visit David in Miami, he cannot rest as the host until I accept yeah. a drink. This is Sophie, my stepdaughter. This is Austin. I was asking, I texted her for another beer. If you want one too, because I'm good. He's asking me the question. Right, as long as I'm not talking. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm messing you up, but no, you're good. Megan, Aaron, and Jane all still live around Tampa Bay. You can see the water if you look just right from Jane's living room. As I'm packing up my gear for the last time, so. Jane grabs a little wooden carving of a clenched hand off her coffee table. Now, do you know what this is? Not a clue. It's a figure. Two copper bands ring the wrist and arm, while the fingernails are copper tacks, a little tarnished and chipping in places. Uh, it's a what? It's called a figa. Figa. And it's a Brazilian good luck. A good luck fist? Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it to you. Wait, what? I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> this is from your time in Rio? or? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Well, thank you. Mostly it's, it's either an ornament, a necklace, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the legend or the story is that you cannot buy them for yourself. They have to be given to you. Oh, okay. So there you go. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Did you give Roy one? No, I'm not going to give him one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I think I, he probably has a necklace one. Yeah. That's right. Um, actually, Karen, I know, does. Even before Mick died, Jane dove into St. Petersburg's single scene. She considered herself a good wife, but she was only in her mid-40s. She refused to play St. Jane, a virgin and a martyr, to an unfaithful husband. Jane was still looking for someone to share her life with when Three Little Words published in 1996. I wanted to date. I was dating, and I thought, well, that put the kibosh on all of that. I was shocked. I got so many cards and positive. And I even had some people come to the office and brought flowers. Jane now goes by Jane Moore Sweat. Not long after Three Little Words published, another David comes into her life. I met him in a sleazy bar. <laughs> it was in Ybor City, so that should tell you a little bit. And we started talking just a tad. And then uh, he asked for another beer, but he said, to the barmaid, Tina, bring me another beer. And I'm like, ooh, that's not good. So how often do you come to this place? <laughs> Skeptical and cautious, Jane devises a test to make sure she's not the other woman. She calls the number the man gave her in the middle of the day when he should be at work. So I knew if somebody was at that house <laughs> number or whatever. David Sweat passed the test. When Jane first met David, she didn't know how to tell him about her past. The fact your husband died of AIDS-related illness doesn't naturally fall into typical first-date conversations. But David made it easy. He shared a story of a relative who'd had a crisis of sexual identity. He sounded so sympathetic to Jane that she knew she could open up. 
On a long drive to Hilton Head Island, Jane tells David, well, now I've got a story for you. Not long after, David Sweat and Jane exchanged vows under a rosy pink sunset next to Boca Ciega Bay. The pair celebrated their 23rd anniversary this May, almost as long as Jane's marriage with Mick. Jane describes her second husband as thoughtful, romantic, and with a strange sense of humor at times. In many ways, he's Mick's total opposite, except for one critical area. He adores my children, which is a good thing. Uh, He loves being a grandfather. And, you know, those are things that are important when you're in another marriage and relationship, because if uh, you're not going to accept my children, at least for me, it'd be bye-bye. Jane's work with cancer support groups at Dr. Panessa's office eventually grew into a foundation. She gathered donations to help cancer patients pay bills, to cover rent, car payments, and groceries as they lost jobs or poured their savings into treatment. About 10 years ago, that evolved into her own nonprofit, Women with Purpose, which keeps her busy helping cancer patients in Florida's Pinellas County to this day. I've had many women say, if it weren't for Women with Purpose, I would have been homeless. That, to me, is a huge statement. But I'll tell you, with this coronavirus, we have to start thinking out of the box. Otherwise, we will not be able to continue to operate if we don't get the funds that we need to help folks. Jane's family has weathered one epidemic, and now this new pandemic. This winter, the coronavirus tore through her family one by one. Thankfully, they all had just mild symptoms. All three of my kids... They can handle anything that comes in their lives for a number of reasons, not only for what they had gone through with their dad and uh, coping with a mother that was kind of half crazy at the time. Mick would be so proud of them. So proud of them. Jane has faith they'll get through COVID-19 together. Her good friend Roy says a pandemic is like a gigantic x-ray machine looks into the culture and shows you what you're made of. Jane knows how all of our past mistakes, experiences, and successes shape us into who we are today. Things that happen by chance or by choice, they all build on one another. We can't escape them, but we can learn to deal with them. There's always something, whether you go through a divorce, you lose a parent, you lose even your pet. It's an experience that's going to make you a better person. And now whether this made me a better person or not, I don't know, but I hope so. Am I glad it happened? Hell no. But yet on the other hand, it made me determined It made me determine that I was going, I was not only going to survive, I was going to make sure that my kids survived, that, you know, we'd be together as a family, we would get through this. Come hell or high water, that's exactly what we did. Three Little Words was reported, written, and produced by me, Austin Fast. 
The original Three Little Words series was conceived and written by Roy Peter Clark in 1996 with editing from Richard Bachman. Podcast script supervision came from Joshua Gillen and Maria Carrillo. Music was provided by Artlist. To read the original series online, flip through Roy's reporting archives, and see additional photos and audio content, visit tampabay.com slash three little words. Catch up with earlier episodes of Three Little Words wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like the series, please rate and review us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.